Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Are morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, didn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square really would have a, a place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. <laughs> the hell is that? <laughs> the man is tired of London. He's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's a very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. And you sneak through the city, what, amassing yourself in the sight, sound, and for the Jewish community the who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. Uh, people frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. Uh, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Hello, it's Friday, February the 1st, 2013. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. And uh, a lot of you getting onto the uh, the Instagram feed for Londonist Out Loud as well to have a look at pictures of our guests. There'll be pictures of uh, the two guests sitting in front of me on there as we speak. And they are Nigel of Bermondsey, who is a site-specific troubadour and post-rationalist. Note me either, but we'll be finding out in just a moment. And uh, with me also is Geraldine Beskin. She is a <laughs> site-specific bookseller, and uh, she sells books on magic and witchcraft in the, in the shadow of the uh, British Museum. Hello, you both. Hello there. Hi. Okay, where, where to begin? I, I sort of see, feel the need to come across to you, Nigel. Of course, you're a friend of the show. You've been on uh, several times before, but not looking like this. Perhaps we could uh, start with your attire today and the reasons for it. Well, I, I believe in change, and uh, I decided that it was quite quite important to go from a, a longer head and slightly more shaggy look to something more like a matinee idol. You, you are looking sharp. You're going for the Errol Flynn look, right? That's what I'm working on, yes. But maybe not the tights. I'm thinking more when he's wearing suits as opposed to being Robin Hood. <laughs> and you can only have his photograph taken in black and white from here on in. Yes, I can only see him in black and white as well. This yeah. is a very, very peculiar effect he's pulling off here. Geraldine, we should uh, plug the, the bookshop first of all and, and maybe dig a little into the sort of stuff. It's like magic, wish 
witchcraft, but it goes further than that, doesn't it? Oh, yes, it does. We, we are Western in our outlook, really, rather than Eastern and mystical. So we don't have much on yoga and um, gurus and people like that. We more are the Western mystery tradition, which is King Arthur, Druidry, witchcraft and um, ceremonial magic, the formal stuff, the thing that they learnt at Hogwarts, basically, but for real. Well, OK, this for real element is, of course, a good place to start. And I remember when I looked on your website, I think it must have been a couple of years ago now, there was a guy who was billing himself as a vampire who I, I'm not sure if he was coming to do a talk here or what, but he was in some way connected with the, with the place. And I thought, well, does he really think he's a vampire? Do other people really think he's a vampire? Which sort of leads to the, the broader question of, uh, with, with all the different ideas and philosophies and occult stuff going on in the in the pages of the books above us do you buy into to all of these different ideas and um, are some of them stronger for you or that do some of them guide how you live your life well alistair crowley and austin spare were customers of ours and they are particular passions of mine and there is so much fashion involved in magic a lot of people don't appreciate that but like the guy who came who was doing the talk on vampires for us now because of buffy and all the television and hollywood stuff there's a there's a great fashion for vampirism and being able to do fantastical feats that really you can only do in a studio but a lot of people now are energy vampires before they were blood-based vampires and that was it now you have to have a, a clean bill of health before you would swap blood with anybody if you have any sense at all and so taking energy from a bigger group is somehow allowable I don't think you should do anything like that without asking the person's permission first. But that's how a lot of vampires do work. This sounds as though it borders on a sort of a philosophy of interpersonal behaviour. Oh, yes, yes, it does. It does. And also, a lot of people have, have got, you know, they, they don't know the boundaries, so they don't know that they're transgressing them, which is quite curious and quite interesting. 20 years ago, there were certain things that you would not dream of doing that people do in groups now. They're even trying to rebrand fortune-telling um, using a name of a French woman that nobody in England can pronounce. There are certain lunacies that have come through the internet and through people not knowing any better, really. And there's this willful corruption of stuff because it's fun. But now, something that is a fun conversation in a pub becomes viral very, very quickly and gets established. And really, it's got no legs. It's, there's no substance to it. So there's big, big changes in magic currently. But you can't beat the fact that if you've got a pure heart, it will be okay. A lot of people don't want a pure heart. And they won't get results either because they haven't got them. Hmm. Okay, so there's something about the, the long establishment, because you've, you've been open here since 22, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and a very uh, curious thing that is too, if you consider that witchcraft was illegal till the early 50s, what did they sell? Well, they, well, what did they sell? Well, they seem to have sold many, med, medieval manuscripts. They sold a lot of anthropology, as we used to call folklore, at parties, to be polite to people, not worry them too much, uh, tarot cards, and... Um, general broad spectrum things but much much harder to do ghosts and spiritualism were very very popular then but while while witchcraft is, was illegal of um astrology wasn't because i mean yeah. when you're thinking back to like the 17th century and you're talking about witch trials um at the same time you'd have for example uh, william Lilly, who was a resident of the strand he was um he was an astrologer he was also a puritan and he was the astrologer to oliver cromwell during the English Civil War, because they, they were uh, they were royalist 
and uh, and roundhead astrologies, and astrology was considered not to be witchcraft unless it was used in the recovery of stolen goods. So that so that actually, if you if if something was lost. Uh, and you went to an astrologer to uh, to see if they could cast an uh, what's known as a horary, which is which kind of finding the time when something was lost. Um, that was considered to be bordering on witchcraft. But if you went there and said, I have got a business venture and I came up with the idea at such and such a time, can you make a chart for me? This was considered to be acceptable. Um, and it's partly because of the relationship between astrology uh, and astronomy as drivers of, you know, astrology very much was a driver of the astrological science. And also because it was practiced mostly by men. Uh, I think that that's really where you find astrology being not made illegal at the same time as, say, witchcraft, really. The untrained ear will have picked up, Nigel, that you are familiar with some of the subjects going on here. What, what's your relationship with uh, with the shop and perhaps with Geraldine? You, you, you know oh, each other already, right? Well, I know Geraldine very well. I, uh, I think we first met when I played at uh, a Folklore Society event in the uh, Bompton Cemetery. Actually, where I was singing a few songs about uh, a few songs about graveyards, as you do, uh, and and burial grounds. Let's not uh, let's not mix those up. We we've kind of stayed in touch. I've uh, I, I pop in because I uh, I really really like the shop and I uh, often buy interesting uh, nuggets of information from here. And I run uh, a folklore society called the South East London Folklore Society, and Geraldine has come and spoken there and also i have uh, performed at events which Geraldine has uh, has put on well lots of crossover clearly then i want to unpack that post-rationalist idea you've, you've you've got yourself down as a post-rationalist what is a post-rationalist okay well i i absolutely love science uh i'm hopefully going to be uh, be studying uh psychology and neurology of music next year uh funds permitting but at the same time i really love mysteries and I think that uh, it's really, really good fun to actually have a look at different beliefs and uh, and enjoy them. And it was one of the reasons why I'm, I'm in the South East London Folklore Society, because you encounter so many very, very interesting beliefs and paths of beliefs. Because I think that that's something that you find certainly in less dogmatic communities, which you certainly find in... Uh, you know, in communities of kind of pagans and druids and whatnot, is that people have their own path and they'll they'll go that way and they'll be interested to see what other people believe and and don't necessarily think that that's the right or the wrong path. And because who 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 necessarily knows? So you're a, you're a skeptic. Um, I I don't have a faith, uh, but I don't believe that that denies the existence of other faiths. That's just, just the path I tend to choose. I. I get very, uh, I get wary when I, I encounter dogma. That's the thing. So, I mean, for example, I was, I, I, I don't have a problem with uh, major world faiths and, unless you encounter dogmatic thought process in it. So, for example, I, I watched a very interesting debate between uh, Richard Dawkins and Rowan Williams recently, which was great. It was really, really good. Um, and in fact, Dare I say it, I think that Rowan Williams may have come across as the more open-minded person at the meeting. Uh, and somebody who I really like uh, reading and listening to is Giles Fraser. I, find, I think that he's 
got some really interesting things to say about contemporary uh, contemporary thought and morality. Giles Fraser is the ex-dean of uh, St Paul's Cathedral, isn't he? Yes, and he's a... Um, I can't remember the church in Southwark. He's, uh, it's, I think it's actually... I think it's more Kennington Way. He's, uh, he's got a church over there now. Yeah, and he, he's always got an interesting thing to say. So I, I'm really interested in reading about people who are prepared to make an investment in their spiritual well-being, because I think that that is showing an engagement with uh, with the mystery side of the world. So how do we square this, Geraldine, then? Because it sounds, on the one hand, as though we're talking about different ways of, of interpreting the world, different things that do seem to require some element of, of belief or, or faith or engagement, and yet also perhaps holding them up for questioning how, how does that uh, how do you, do you combine those in your own life i think you should hold things up for questioning you know and the first thing you learn as, as somebody who's interested in this is not to be passive about it you just don't accept what you're told and i think that natural contrariness makes for a good occultist really i'm also very very excited by the neuroscientists they're on to us they are determined to spend millions and millions of money to prove magic wrong and they, they wire friends of mine up to various machines and things like that. And they're amazed by the bits of the brain that close down when you're doing a ritual, other bits that are heightened and so on. And it would be great if they can explain magic. Then, you know, we were there 9,000 years ahead of them. So we win, I think, on a moral ground there. I still think there will always be that small percentage that you can't explain. And really, why should you? Because untold millions of people have had very clear very devout faiths of all sorts since time began and it's an essential part of our makeup to believe that there is something beyond and bigger than us and hopefully it's a benign god that you believe in rather than one of you know hellfire and retribution and stuff like that but no it's it is explainable but it's only just beginning to become explainable I wonder if we could, uh, we've talked about some fairly high philosophical ideas and we've touched on God already in the first (laughs) 10 minutes of the show. Um, I wonder if we could just bring it down and talk about one or two specific examples of of magic and what that means when when you talk about um, the things that need explaining by science. What what would be an example of of magic that might need explaining in in various ways? Oddly enough, they're quite difficult to explain because you kind of had to be there. And it's like an accident. It's that weird confluence of man hits bus, bus hits man. And, you know, if only they'd left home five minutes earlier, it wouldn't have happened and so on and so on. And it's the same with magic. If you accept that you're using different rules to when you're cooking or to when you're driving, then those rules work. They've been established many, many, many thousands of years, and every generation has their own spin on them. But in essence, you're trying to... Crowley described magic as the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will. And even people who don't like him accept that that's a very good definition of magic. It's, It's weird, but it works. Uh, we, we might talk further about uh, this Crowley figure who appears uh, right throughout any discussion of the occult or magic. Um, but I can't help noticing, uh, Nigel, that you've got a guitar with you and it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge the musical side of your life, which is substantial, of course. Oh, yes. Well, I am a site-specific storyteller. I, I write songs about place. Uh, so uh, I, I'm called Nigel of Bermondsey because I got obsessed with writing songs about Bermondsey. In fact, just recently I've been commissioned to write a song about the the blue on uh, on Southwark Park Road, which is uh, which is the market, Blue Anchor Market, 
um, and uh, and that I believe is is going to be uh, released locally in Bermondsey, which is where it ought to be. And I, I I've just heard that I'm going to be doing a tour of Bermondsey fairly soon. Uh, my friend Russell, the fishmonger, is organising a tour of Bermondsey, and I, I will be doing that as well. Also, just going back to Crowley, of course, I've been putting poems of Crowley to music for a number of years now, which is always it's very good fun. He's, a, he's an interesting he's an interesting lyricist. I like the the play of words, the way that they they work. You can certainly see with certain of uh, of the poets which have uh, a ritual aspect to them. So I suppose Yeats as well, really, that it's not just the words which they're doing. They're trying to create a shape and a, and a notion around it. It's They're very, very interesting uh, things to try and arrange to music. I mean, I'm in the process of having a look at Baudelaire, but Baudelaire can get a bit dark. Uh, but, you know, I think that there's there's validity in looking around that, and that's one of the things I, I very much enjoy about music, and it's why I want to be studying a little bit more about about music is looking yes yeah, so, so psychology of music you, you were mentioning well yeah I'm, I'm just i'm rather interested in why 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 are we so musical because we are uh, as a as a species uh kind of uniquely musical i mean you have you have birds to an extent which 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 use song but as as, as humans partly because of the fact that we can speak and we can communicate through vocalization and we have tones which you can hear within the voice we're extremely sensitive to tone and rhythm and meter and timbre and all of these things and there's the idea that maybe uh song and music was a uh, was was pre-language and i'm just I, I think that's fascinating what is the function of music why do we all find it so important why why have we evolved to have it as an integral part of our existence i like the fact that you can actually uh kind of scientifically look at the frequencies and 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 understand that we respond to let's say a perfect fifth or an octave in massively different ways to uh what's it is it the augmented fourth well whatever you know Di- diabolus in musica the the the, the, the discord and I, I think that's funny to think that there's elements of us which are hardwired um but we're also kind of plastic if you think about it we've got was it 100 billion neurons 100 million neurons in our in our heads i think that's about it and each of those can make god knows how many connections it's it's mind-boggling when you actually think about what's going you know what is happening in your brain um i find it amazing that whilst you can start to localize to an extent uh, you know where you know where let's say where you're planning events, which is probably your frontal lobes, or where you're starting to process your your sight, which is in your occipital lobes at the back or whatever, and you can have a little bit of an idea of where elements of the brain work with elements of thought, but at the same time, it's not necessarily a realistic thing to think about the mind as being linked to your anatomy because the brain is so plastic. The brain's just a box at the end of the day with with kind of wires and connections and the mind is is within it and that's that's where it's really it really kind of gets exciting because you're kind of going well you can learn a little bit about the 
about you know about about the anatomy but you're also having a look uh, at the notion and the ideas of what function is and um, I'm just kind of excited I don't really know enough yet so I want to learn more in terms of uh, musical influence I'm trying to work out where your influences might be drawn from because I, I just discovered that you were uh, part of Gay Dad which might be a, a band name that people are familiar with 12, 10, 15 about years 15, ago about 15 years ago that was yeah that was on the uh, festival circuit and all that sort of stuff I think you popped up at Glastonbury more than once didn't you uh, well, twice on the same day. Right. <laughs> so that is that is more than once, yes. Right. And of course, there's a cover of uh, In Spiral Carpets, so this is how it feels to be yeah, lonely on Spotify and stuff. But let's come back via Crowley. Let's nail down who Crowley was, first of all, though. Alistair Crowley was the best magician of the 20th century. The end. He was a fantastic man in lots of ways, and he has suffered from a terribly bad press, a lot of which was deserved. But he was also very, very courageous. He was very much out as a bisexual man, and I think one part of him kind of wanted to be the next Oscar Wilde. But things like his poetry, I mean, he devoted his life to magic and so on, but a lot of people have said he was a terrible poet. If you read those poems as songs, they're quite different. He even wrote a couple of operas, which really people haven't taken on board at all yet. There's a, he keeps being a very rich seam to mine, basically. You just think you've got him nailed and some other aspect of his life will turn up. And I mean, I, I'm not musical at all, but I followed your argument there. But it seems, uh, you know, broad brushstrokes, it seems to be that slow, deep and uh, som- equals sombre. Mm. You know, when I think of hymns and things yeah. like that. And then fast and peppy means happy. And that's a very simple split in the mind. But the creativity is the bit that I don't think people are going to be able to capture with their machines, whether it's songs, whether it's writing, whether it's painting or whether other, whatever other creative form it is. Mm. That's the intangible bit of us, really. And I think yeah. long may it stay so, really. I think I think that there's chance that there'll be more understanding. Mm. But I see it as a way of propelling art forward. I think that the more you know about the media you're working with, i.e. your your head and stuff like that, you can move forward to more mysteries and more fun. I think I was. there's a really interesting... Um, he's called... He's a neuroscientist called Eagleman. He's an American guy. And he, he's developed a, a concept called um, being a possibilian, which I really, really like, where he sees the sum total of knowledge as being a, like being on a pier and you're looking out at, like, basically infinity. And the more knowledge you, you get, it's just making the pier a little bit bigger each time but the more you know the more mysteries there are and that's something which I think is wonderful I think Socrates had a similar idea using the idea of a a spotlight effectively so that the the larger the circumference of the circle with the the knowledge inside it you become more aware of more darkness Mm. that's beyond it so yeah not a a brand new idea perhaps but um, in neuroscience maybe being applied very very differently we should come back to the music how do you go about putting Crowley to music, how do you make well, those, those choices? It's it, it really depends on the song. Some of the songs follow a very uh, kind of simple verse verse structure, and you can go, okay, I can get with this. I'm going to to have a, a pretty simple uh, progression with it. What you have to do is you have to know the words really well before you can put it to music. So I'll I'll just literally sit with a with a poem for a few weeks and go, I'm going to be writing something to this that's it and I'll be reading it and going okay what I'll do and the, and you'll start to have an idea of it there's one which I did a hymn to Pan which was because it's got a, a complex structure I ended up having to look at it and go okay 
this isn't going to follow a traditional song structure. I'm going to literally have to look through this. And I color-coded it. I wanted to have a look where the different meaning strands were going through so that I could get it, so that I could actually look at where recurring themes would come along. So that it's not so much a song in a kind of a rondo format where you have like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus, which is like a classic thing. It's more like you're going, well, it's a journey. So I'm going from here to the end. There will be recurring themes along the way to help you understand what's going on. And that's really when you're looking at trying to be true to poems uh, and provide an arrangement for a poem that I think one should do. Because, you know, the poet, you know, in this case, it's Crowley. He wrote his poem in a particular way. I think it would be disrespectful to go, okay, but that doesn't fit musically, so I'm going to adapt it. Not really interested in that. I'd rather go, well, no, no, that's the way the journey is. So let's see how we can make it work. And that's part of the, for for me with music, part of the fun is setting oneself some limitations to work with. I find it very, very hard to work with just a blank sheet. You go, right, what am I going to do today? What shall I write? And you're going, oh, as opposed to going, I'm going to write a whole bunch of songs about ghosts, which is you know what I've done recently, and I'm I'm, I'm also working on songs of you know basically the panth- English folk pantheon. I, I find that really interesting. Well, you know? One of the other things he did, he went on a trip to Russia, and he went off to set off for Nizhny Novgorod, and he wrote I think it was 300 rhyming couplets, these stanzas that he did about the trip, you know, and uh, basically it's a, a, a vodka fueled blog. But it's so funny. Oh, it's unbelievable. Absolutely stroke of genius. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't edited, it wasn't revived, it just, as it came, very, very funny. And that immediacy that he was able to capture, I think, is very, very fine. Because you you came along to Selfs and you were talking about um, how he imported ragtime, exported ragtime to Russia. Yes. And his his vodka diary, it's like, it's kind of, it reminds me of like some kind of strange Bukowski dandy world. It's really funny. It's really good. You're going, wow. Now, why, why is Crowley spoken of with uh, in, in a whisper quite often? People seem to be a little afraid of Crowley. Because they're listening to gossip that is at least 60 years old. And a lot of people now have taken drugs. They've had sex before marriage. They've had more than one sexual partner. This is outrageous. Somebody should be telling the authorities. It's shocking to us all. But he did that and told people that he'd done it. And he also burnt through his fortune. But he didn't just dissipate it. He bought himself a substantial house up in Scotland as a family home. He financed a trip to the Himalayas to climb the second highest mountain in the world because you couldn't climb Everest at the time. Um, he did everything on that trip except buy the Sherpa's boots. He just presumed they got their own, so they went up the mountain barefoot. Um, he'd spent a lot of money publishing his own works. He was very, very, very generous to his friends. He, he blew the money, yes, but he blew, them on, he blew it on big projects. And anybody who has a very, very strict upbringing, as soon as they get a bit of freedom, they go bonkers. He, he was he was from Plymouth Brethren. Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Very narrow. I mean, and he he was a vile teenager before they were invented, and the family then didn't trust him when he went up to Cambridge. So they famously said, "Send us all every bill. Send us everything." They wouldn't allow him cash. So he uh, used to buy books by the ton, as he says, and immediately sell them back to the booksellers at, at a great loss. But he actually had cash to live on then. 
you know, so he, he had to overcome a very, very difficult background. And nowadays, I think we would expect, accept that he was Asperger's or something like that. Um, but he, he had a, a brain the size of a planet and he had such enthusiasm for whatever it is. If somebody said, let's get a 47 bus to the North Pole, he'd go. You know, clever man. We must uh, turn to the week's news <laughs> in London. I'll make it sound like a chore. Uh, not at all. There's been a lot going on. Some of it really quite awful. And, uh, of course, our thoughts are with the people affected by this uh, helicopter crash that took place in Vauxhall a couple of weeks back now. I've got to say, just remarkable, and, and thank God that uh, no more people were injured or killed by this, uh, of course, terrible tragedy. I heard the story of the fellow who's supposed to be working in the in the crane at the time. I don't know if you heard this. His children normally wake him up at five o'clock in the morning reliably, whether he likes it or not, and uh, they didn't inexplicably that day and he consequently arrived at work just as the accident was taking place and his his cab in the crane that he would have been sitting in was torn apart great fluke that isn't it i had friends in um new york when the twin towers were uh, exploded and both of them separate to each other for no good reason rang into work that day and said I'm just taking a sickie. I just don't want to come in today. And save their own lives by doing it. You know, fluke is just such an important part. And like, yeah. the, like the accident, in a way, Battersea isn't the place to have a heliport, I don't think. You know, it's so it could be further out. It could be in Chiswick or Mortlake or further away down the river. We've still got tubes to get the people back into town and get a cab. So I think it's the, that helicopter, heliport is sighted wrongly. Well, I think that with London's changing landscape, I, I, I do a lot of running and I run along the river and I've been doing it for years and you, one has seen the way that Vauxhall is changing oh. and how Battersea is changing. Um, it's, it's a terrible accident and I, I don't, it's one of those things where I, I don't think that apportioning blame is really, really fair in this respect yeah. because the landscape has changed and, uh, and the, the weather conditions were difficult there was an uncertainty about the terrain it's just the fact that accidents do do happen in london it's not very common um in the same way as you know we we're on major flight paths in in london and we we basically have a safe aerospace really do you feel comfortable particularly with talk of a third runway which we probably don't have time to get yeah. to get into in in depth but in principle then it sounds as though you're nigel comfortable with the idea of the planes going over us uh on a, on a regular basis i'm comfortable from where i am in kind of southeast london i think that it would be it would be responsible to actually have a look at people who live close to airports and see about whether looking at capacity at capacity being spread out because you know i I do fly every once in a while and when i'm there the volume is you know it's orders of magnitude higher than where i am i'm i'm in the center you know basically in the center of, of london so you you know you're on the flight path every other day that doesn't affect my life as 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 much as people who live nearby you know and you know, if you if you live somewhere and you're kind of going, well, how's that? You know, and you, and you you own a house. How's that? How's that going to affect my area? And I think that when you're looking at that volume of noise, I think that you know people live here too. I think that it's it's responsible to see about sharing it out. You know, I'm I you know I voted for Ken, but at the same time, I think that you know when Boris is saying we should think about having another you know runway somewhere else. 
I, I don't see that as a bad idea as well. You know. which, which is already, yes, near, near capacity. But what about this issue of coming back to the idea of, of safety? How safe do you feel? Because a, an accident like this, rare as it is, does raise uh, the, the awareness of that sort of possibility, doesn't it? My worry is that there's so little time between planes now that if the man in the tower who guides people in blinks then there's the huge potential for an accident. And it's again, it's nobody's real fault other than the pressure that they're putting on the place. That will grow if there's a third runway there. And I do always think that the people who live and are directly affected by these things are the last people that the planners consider. They're the plebs. They're the little ants at the bottom, as far as they're concerned. If they were adequately compensated and you just accepted that there was going to be an ecological dead zone around an airport, then maybe that would be okay. The idea of Boris Island in the Thames estuary, ecologically, that's such a disaster and just such a stupid idea that I'm... You know, if 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 a man, you know, if a drunk on the bus was saying it, nobody would take any notice. I, I, you know, I think he's a blonde on a bike. I think he's just been very, very, very silly about that, and it's the it's just an impossibility that one. I think really. Do you ever get him as a customer here? No, mercifully, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> I did see somebody. He was stuck at the traffic lights one day on his bike, and there was a mo- man who was waving his arms and really haranguing him, and I sort of cheered silently from the bus. Well done. <laughs> yes, that. that might explain why uh, more leaders don't use their bike on a regular basis. I've noticed that Dave Cameron's use of a bike has dropped off markedly mm. since he became PM. I don't think it's just security. He's a marked man now, isn't he, really? Well, he is, yeah, yes, yeah. but I'm sure that's not the only reason. Yeah. Um, let's move on to uh, other issues. What, what do you fancy from the stories from the last week or so? Um, a rather jolly one is the London Underground invites busker, buskers and having proper auditions, but they're having kids from the age of 16. And when you're 16, you want to be a pop star. You want to be famous and the idea of them auditioning and running themselves as a business and all the rest of it and getting exposure to thousands upon thousands of people a day i think is a very good idea i thought the buskers already had to be licensed and get and uh, get permissions but taking them from 16 i think is a good thing and it's up to them to succeed or fail and to turn up and do it regularly i'm just wondering what my favorite busker uh I actually quite like the uh, I quite like the, the guys who just kind of who are who are still kind of not really legal who just turn up on your carriage and uh, and they're playing partly because they're playing they and it, it's kind of uncomfortable because it's kind of you're you're trapped in the carriage and somebody is playing like an Elvis tune or something like that and then goes around and nobody can go anywhere and there's like a real awkward squirm as as like is they going well I'm going to ask you and and like the person's there going well I can't ignore you and and walk past you because you're right in my face and I find that fun. I, I have to say if you take away the musical instruments that becomes uh, five or six blokes getting into the carriage and shaking everyone down. I agree with that. But I mean, it's just one guy. Yeah. One, one guy, a different story. No, yes, absolutely. I've never, I've, I'm just saying that the one guy, partly because I do enjoy um, awkward situations. 
kind of fun. You see, on the tube, though, you can ignore them. You cannot make eye contact. It's about the only place where that's really legitimate, that you just don't look them in the eye and you can pretend they just are invisible. You can't hear yeah. a damn thing. I'm all in favour of renegade behaviour, yeah. though, as long as it's not too menacing. And yeah. people shouldn't be over-licensed. They shouldn't be boxed in by petty rules and all the rest of it. And that, that enterprising spirit, mm. I think, should really be applauded. Well, do, do away with the licensing altogether, then, surely. Because shouldn't it just be a free-for-all? No, I think there are lots of people who have no structure in their lives. And the, the idea here of teenagers being able to understand that it's a bigger thing than they are I think this, would be, yeah. is very constructive and very, very positive. I think this, this structure kind of follows quite closely like the, uh, the Covent Garden model, which has always been auditioning for, for your slots. And it does mean that the quality of buskers at the particular spots is better. Mm. You know, it's got better over the past few years. I think that uh, I have to say, I do admire buskers. It's not something that I, I think I could do because it's just you're there and people will go past you so quickly. No, I don't think I could do it. Take a rubbish tour of London. Yeah, it says alternative tours of London come in many guises and formats, but here's the first pitching itself as rubbish. The rubbish trip is a two mile ramble from Mudshoot to Greenwich. We'll pass. Historic dumps and landfills. Hear the stories of castaway communities and marvel at the methods of transforming the capital's waste. And they, they say here that uh, this is dot makers tours. It looks quite cool. Um, they're, they're talking about Victorian scavengers like uh, the Pure Finders. Uh, and probably they'd go on to talk about toshing, which is... Uh, I, I like toshers because they, they, have a, they have a folk legend, which is one of the folk legends unique to London. Toshers are like extreme mudlarkers. They used to go into the sewers and they used to search amongst what the Victorians would politely call night soil for treasure. And believe it or not, it was really profitable because lots of things would fall down the water closets and drains. So loads of gold and silver and stuff like that. And, you know, it's like the the cutlery was quite often fine cutlery, which would fall down the, the plug holes because they were old plug holes, which were open. So things would just fall down them. Um, but, but this has got to have a low life expectancy as a profession. Believe it or not, believe it or not, the Toshers, when they left the, uh, left the sewers, they had, would earn enough money so that they could drink exclusively beer. They'd live in the pubs. So when there were cholera epidemics and whatnot, much like the brewers, they'd just drink beer, wouldn't catch cholera. So kind of epidemiologically, they have this thing. But they had the legend of the queen rat. Uh, And the queen rat, they believed that there was one rat who ruled them all in London, and she was a giant rat, and um, she could change her form. So she could change her shape to be a beautiful woman. And she had come into the pub where the Toshers drank and she might choose a lucky Tosher and they might become extremely well acquainted. And uh, she would give the, uh, the Tosher a love bite uh, before, uh, before melting away into the night. And from that day on, the Tosher would be a lucky Tosher and all the little rats with the little ratty noses would push coins and treasure to their questing fingers. But the firstborn child of the Tosher would be known as Ratsborn and would have one eye blue and one eye grey. Well, somebody should really write a song about that, shouldn't they, Nigel of Bermondsey? <laughs> it's funny you should say that. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> Geraldine? No, they, they were immune to certain illnesses as well, weren't they? Because they were extended families and, and groups of friends. Because it wasn't a job, really, that people signed up for. Uh, because so, so you were sort of apprenticed in or grandfathered into yes, being a tosher? Yeah. yeah. And, but they, they did make fortunes. But and say, like Nigel said, they didn't get cholera and things like that. And Dickens was quite fond of them, wasn't he? Yeah. He mentions them a few times. And then 
the opposite of that is this silly, silly thing of the litter fines for dropping cigarette butts and stuff like that that's just come up. It's a license to rip people off and annoy the hell out of them, basically. Well, we, we should go into the detail then of, of, of exactly what this is, this litter fine. What, what can you be fined for dropping? You can be fined for dropping a litter butt, uh, um, a cigarette butt, or you can uh, for a sweet paper or something like that, which you may not even know has come out of your pocket. That's the unjust thing. It, it's classically shooting fish in a barrel. It's that easy. And it's an instant fine. If people had to go to court, they would be given the opportunity to represent themselves, to say, no, actually, it wasn't like that at all. Or, you know, I was you know, stopping my toddler being run over or whatever the circumstances were. Whereas it's just another way of councils making money out of people walking along the street. You should be fined if you've dropped your toddler, though, surely. Oh, I think you should. I think you should, yes. Somebody should pick you up should. on that. It's remedial classes if you do that, yes, yes. Um, this is being ad- administered by a private company. In fact, a number of uh, London boroughs, New and Bromley, Hillingdon and Enfield uh, councils are all using this one particular firm who I'm, I, don't, I have no inclination of publicising, but they're a private company. And the idea on their website is that the wardens will issue enough fines to cover their own pay. That, shouldn't that be ringing alarm bells straight away, Nigel? Yes. I, I think that performance-related fines is, seems to be, you know, I, no, I'm, I'm not buying that terribly terribly corrupt and in, in, in it's like this generation's version of the people who tow your cars away really they're not licensed in any sensible way at all and it is all about results well now the the, the people who take your car away they don't they tend to work directly for the council and, and certainly there's the suspicion that the council and we've talked about it in recent shows that the council is swelling its coffers by issuing fines for that sort of thing and, and, uh, and parking fines and so forth and we, we spoke previously about Westminster Council seeming very proud of the fact that they're making a profit yeah. on these things um, but taking in a private company from outside who's going to do this sort of thing that just adds an extra layer of dubiousness to the whole process doesn't it yeah and there'll be casual workers and there's you know there's just so much opportunity for dishonesty but 20 odd years ago when my daughter was at primary school um outside the school somebody took away a car except it had a six-week-old baby in it and we just blocked off drury lane and we said we're going to do you for kidnap and that that car was off that lorry yeah. quicker than you could say anything. But you know the damage they would do to it and things like that. They'd say, "Sorry, girl, it was you know it was it was scraped before it went on my on my lorry." So very bad. I dislike all those sorts of things. And this is cynical and wicked of the councils. Well, let's put the other view though, which is uh, surely we need to do something to tidy up the city. We are if, you, if as soon as you go to another city somewhere in the world, there's a very good chance you're going to see a cleaner place than <laughs> London often is. And uh, um, I, I get rather fed up as i'm sure you do with cars going past and dropping a kfc out of the side or whatever i I mean i i believe that when one litters what one is kind of expressing some kind of uh expression of depression to be honest with you i think that when people drop litter it's a way of having some kind of control because you don't feel in control of your environment so you may as well just chuck it down there because i'm not in control and i think that uh accusing people who are feeling you know, exhibiting what I consider to be kind of a, a symptom of feeling bad about themselves, uh, of of doing something bad, kind of it spirals away. When I, I remember being in a, in LA a few years back, and the, on the on the in the metro there, they they had these posters saying LA is really great, 
we're really proud of it hope you're proud of it too why don't you put your litter in the bin mm. and i think that that kind of way of of, of doing doing it is much better i used to th- think that it was um okay to confront people who drop litter but i don't think it's the way to do it i mean what i do is if i see somebody dropping litter and i, I don't want to make them feel bad so i don't tend to do it in you know in front of them but if it's annoying me i'll pick it up and tuck it in the bin um because the more people who just do that, you know, as opposed to just concentrating on people who litter, you, one can also think about people who don't litter, who maybe go, oh, there's a piece of litter, I'll pick it up and put it in the bin as well. Because that's an expression of pride in the place. And, and that's much more uh, sh- having, uh, having a feeling of re- kind of civic pride and responsibility as opposed to, oh, well, I'd better do it, as opposed to because I'll get fined. That's just not going to work for me. Well, yeah. indeed, eventually you'll come around to a sort of a social embarrassment situation because the majority of people will be uh, perhaps picking up their litter. I, I wonder about the, the idea of having both approaches in play, though, because I, I really like to, uh, to, to penetrate the consciousness of uh, some people who I'm not convinced would pick up on this sort of positive vibe that, uh, that you, you're thinking of. Well, you you say that but i was i was down on bellenden road in um se was it se 15 yeah uh and i was there was a guy who was just in his car and he was he just he was just having his uh having his takeaway food and he, he just literally opened his door and he he chucked it on the floor and i was i was on a run and i thought oh, i'll just pick it up and i picked it up and i said you don't mind if i just tuck this in the bin for you uh because uh, I, I didn't want to be confrontational, but I, I wanted to put it in the bin. And I thought, well, it's no longer his property, but I'll ask him anyway. And he went, thanks, mate. That's all right. And I thought, well, that's good. I honestly think, you know, that talking to people about litter in a in a reasonable way without flipping well, saying that it's a wrong thing or a bad thing, it's, it, it's unpleasant for other people. Um, my personal hate, though, is when people... Uh, do half the job so that if you if your dog does a mess you put the mess into a bag and then you leave the bag which is that's the halfway house that i can't abide uh i think that for 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 dog mess i think that finding is probably the the correct approach because you know that's really awful and it's really it's actually a public health issue so that's where i think if there's an issue of public health then yeah fine it uh well ben fogel was trying to have a dog poo day where people are kind of made to pick up their dog poo and to be really quite aggressive and get their local parks cleaned up so you have a day one sort of a situation but there used to be i mean when i was a girl a very simple campaign which was called keep britain tidy it was as simple as that. And I think particularly in the West End here, so many people aren't native to here. Yes. And also you can't find a litter bin. I don't see Well, why. yes, that, that surely is a yeah. quite a substantial problem, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, and, and again, you know, you, you, we were kind of trained to take our rubbish home with us. Mm. It was as simple as that. You just put it in your mum's pocket. That's, that's how it worked. But you could have... Trans- not, not the dog poo, obviously. No, 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 no. But you could have transparent bag, you know, transparent litter bins, so you can see that nothing untoward has been put in there. And you, the, the, so again, the councils don't help with the volume of people that there are in the West End. They've got nowhere to go. And also, culturally, lots of places 
people do drop their litter and it's the, the shopkeepers who keep the bit outside their shop mm. clean and rubbish free mm. and, and actually that. there is a culture of that and that's actually where the litter bins are most often found but as you say West End uh, very few litter bins the city nothing yeah. un- yeah. underground nothing so if you have a banana and you're going from the city you go on the tube and you pop out in the West End you're going to be holding your banana peel all day looking rather foolish that's Yeah. And, and what does that train you yeah. to, uh, except to, to be discreet yeah. about where you drop it surely yeah that's it so again this is easy fining people when actually they don't have much of a choice about it because cafes where you could leave your banana skin who have tables outside do really resent picking up other people's mess you know it's it there's a it's sort of sordid once it's not yours or a customer's there's a difficult difficult is um is dropping like a metro or a uh, an evening standard on the rail behind the tube is that littering i don't think it is no, that's being obliging. Well, it's a good question because the, there's that whole... I mean, this might appeal to you, Geraldine, the, the whole um, book-sharing schemes mm. that go on every every so often, once a year or once every couple of months, uh, where you're encouraged to leave a, a book that you've read in a public place for somebody to pick up. Now, under this scheme, presumably, that's you getting a fine. Yeah, well, as an antidote to magic, I, I like to read a nice murder mystery, and I read them on the bus, and I leave them on the bus. And people tend to say, oh, you left your book, dear. And I say, no, no, you can have it if you like it. And then that starts a little discussion, and that's fine. But it is recycling in a gentle way and it's not rubbish it's an item Mm. it's something deliberately left it's not something that i've just dropped out of indifference really yeah i suppose with the with the paper if it's left on the kind of the shelf you know the bit Mm. behind the seat on the tube or Mm. it's not on the floor if it's on the floor that's litter yeah but if it's an apple core it always is litter it's horrid. I'll tell you what I would like to know, and this if anybody knows this, uh, if you're listening and you know the answer to this, I'd love you to let me know. Uh, all of the newspapers, and there are many of them that get left on public transport mm-hmm. and uh, are still on there when the train or bus reaches its terminus, mm-hmm. do they get recycled? Can anybody tell us about that, or are they all going in the general trash? Love to know the answer to that question. That's a lot of newspapers. Let's keep moving on. We've, we've done enough rubbish. I'm going to dash through a couple of quick ones. The uh, the news that we've got a new £2 coin celebrating the London Underground, which, of course, is itself celebrating 150 years, designed by Edward Barber and Jay Osgaby, who were responsible for the 2012 Olympic torch. Uh, we've got one with a, a train coming out of a tunnel on the edge and uh, the other a uh, London Underground roundel with Mind the Gap on the site also still transport related london uh, has got a another new bus on a, on the 24 bus route this time it's getting the new <laughs> it's called the the son of route master bus or the boris bus we're please not another boris thing no, <laughs> we're, we're going to be living in borisville if we're not careful long after he's gone not a huge amount of uh, information in the transport for london press release on this one but apparently the new buses will be going into operation during the summer and that's about as precise as they care to get on that one Uh, The 24, you'll know, is a 24-hour bus route and the new bus will be operated by the driver only during night time, which means that the door on the rear platform will be exit only. So there you go. If you uh, 24 is your bus route, you know what to look forward to at some point later in the year. Nigel of Bermondsey. Uh, There's uh, LGBT History Month in February, which has got a whole bunch of films and art events and talks um, one which I, I like the look of is on the 24th of February at the Wallace Collection at 2.30pm with uh, Sadie Lee and David McCalmont talking about their favourite pieces. And that's the Wallace Collection, which is just uh, just near Marleybone High Street. 
and that's free but booking essential anything free at the wallace collection has got to be oh, fantastic yes. straight away and look at this we it's have got the laughing cavalier in there and yeah, the famous fragonard girl on a swing and they're the only you know they're the only two people things that people used to go to the wallace collection to see other than henry the suit of armor that's so fantastically mm. beautifully chased and i don't know if that's gone up to the imperial war museum in leeds now or if it's still theirs, but it's a, it's a very shishi place, the Wallace Museum. I rather like it there. Yeah, it's been it was done up a few years back. Mm. It's really it's it's a, it's a really good fun fun place. It's one of my one of my fave kind of yeah. weird weird museums. I'm looking to see what else is going on, which looks really good. There was one on the 28th of February, which looked really. Oh no, 26th of February, at the Petrie Museum, mm. with an Egyptologist, uh, John J. Johnston presents objects of LGBT significance from the Petri Museum, and that's at 6pm. Free, again, I love free events. What, what do you reckon John J. Johnson's middle name is? I've got a suspicion <laughs> I might know. John. Yeah, I reckon. John, John Johnson. Yeah. That would be amazing. Really ought yeah, to be. Yeah. A friend of mine, he's a producer on an LGBT TV show on ITV, and he says that apparently LGBT is going out of fashion now, and it's supposed to be LGBTQII. Oh, Apparently, I don't know if this is uh, if this is widely uh, accepted as fact, but it's supposed to be uh, lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, transgender, queer. Uh, oh no, it's QQI, queer, questioning, and uh, in- intersex or something like that. I think that the acronym, as it stands at the moment, is understandable. When acronyms get too long, I'm, I, I kind of blanked out after. After the, after the four letters of the acronym, mm. I'm wondering whether there is a cutoff with acronyms. There ought yeah. to be. Didn't there? You know, it's like maybe now maybe there should be some legislation about how long an acronym should be. Maybe on the spot fines for uh, acronyms that are too long. We need to uh, we need to come to a close, but not before um, we've dealt. Well, we've got uh, three items of business left to go. Number one is for me to let you know that our sponsor, as ever, is Audible.co.uk, and uh, I'm I'm not sure how Geraldine's going to take this, but uh, they're offering audiobooks that you get online. So I'm I might be due for a. I'm going to just going to stay out of arm's reach of Geraldine for a moment um, to make sure you're never without entertainment. We have teamed up, of course, with Audible.co.uk to offer you a free digital audiobook from their catalogue of 60,000 audiobooks. And as you well know, all you need to do is go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist, click through, sign up for a 30-day free trial, uh, which you can, of course, cancel at any point. And in exchange for that, you'll get a free audiobook that is yours to keep. Listen to on MP3, iPhone, iPad, burn it to a CD, listen to it in the car, whatever you fancy. And, and of course, that should go side by side with, uh, not while you're driving the car, but side by side with a physical book in paper from a traditional bookseller or not, not so traditional bookseller <laughs> in, uh, in the West End, yes. perhaps in the Bloomsbury area, perhaps, yes. perhaps Atlantis. Yes. Don't drop it once you've downloaded it onto anything or it will cost you money. <laughs> The second item of business is to recognise the gift from our friends across the channel in France who gave us an eggy smell. What is this all about? Oh, this is a classic smell of rotten eggs, and so the French got blamed, you know, and why not? It probably can come from there. And they, they say that it's actually um, it, this sulphurous waft, it's actually emanating from France, um, but nobody quite knows why, other than it's some unpronounceable chemical that is just wafting over to us. Deliberately made to smell of eggs so that we know it's there, of course. And they can control the wind and everything these clever french people that just sent it in our direction yeah. <laughs> that sounds much filthier than it really was absolutely <laughs>
Uh, yes, every. Do you, do you want to do the, do the what on earth joke? No, I can't do it. <laughs> no, okay. Thank God we saved us from that. Yes. Well, thank you very much for the uh, for the eggy smells. Uh, I think Rouen, uh, from London to Rouen, merci. But finally, the uh, the, the London quiz it's a quiz of the week which i haven't told you about so you don't know to expect it but i suspect you're going to be rather good at it let's see how we get along it's um it's five questions uh from this week in history we're going back this week as far as 1444 let's start on monday the 28th of january 1807 something happens in pall mall making that street unique in the world what is it? Um, I really don't know. Is it when Buckingham Palace opened or, or it was lost in a game of cards? Uh, no, nothing to do with uh, cards. This is uh, sort of technology-based. Streetlights? It, what you get spot on straight away. Oh. Uh, Streetlights, yes, absolutely. The uh, the gas lamps on Pall Mall are lit, making it the first street in the world to be illuminated in such a fashion. I do know that the first man to wear a, um, a top hat in London was arrested in the Strand for causing a disturbance. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Not an on-the-spot on the fine, then. <laughs> uh, Tuesday, the 29th of January, 1976. Twelve IRA bombs explode in the area around which West End Street, injuring a taxi driver and starting several small fires? Is that Tottenham Court Road? Not Tottenham Court Road. Oxford Street, the Wimpy Bar? Oxford Street, it absolutely is, yes. And uh, that makes two... To Geraldine, um, you need to need to do some work here, sir. <laughs> Wednesday, the thirtieth of January, nineteen sixty-nine. What happens on the roof of the Apple Records building in Mayfair? Oh, it's this when they play the uh, what's the face album? Yes. Yeah, yes. let it be. Yeah. yeah. Go on. What's the significance of it, though? Who, who, who are we talking? Last concert together. It's the Beatles' last yeah. concert. Yes. Yeah. Did you know that, Nigel? Look me square in the eye. That. I didn't know that. You did know that. I'm, I'm going to give it to you because I think you did, but you just didn't get around yeah. to saying it. But calling them they, everybody knows who they were. <laughs> they I think yes. you should, you've more than earned the yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one to Nigel, two to Geraldine. <laughs> 31st of January, 1609. Which group of people is hanged at Old Palace Yard in Westminster? Oh, that would be the uh, gunpowder plot. Absolutely, yes. yes. Guy Fawkes and his fellow conspirators who who plotted to do... Uh, do, you, do you happen to remember exactly what their plot was? Well, they wanted to blow up the Houses of Parliament uh, and they, they actually rented a warehouse nearby and they were digging underneath the warehouse to actually be able to um, build it, to have a tunnel underneath uh, the, the Houses of Parliament to do it. And I think they came up in another warehouse... So they rented that one there, and then they, they, and it was close enough, and they actually set the fuses and stuff. But it was such a large plot that uh, uh, somebody, somebody blabbed, and they, they got, they got chased down across the country. And what's his face? One of the um, Humphrey Littleton, one of his relatives, was, uh, was, was in the plot. I seem to recall. Yeah, there was a programme on BBC Two a number of years ago where they recreated historical plots mm. and they built somewhere that was the same size as the room that the gunpowder was due mm. to go off in and all the rest of it. My golly, it went off with a hell of a bang. Mm. If it had worked, it would have been smithereens. Yeah. Ooh, I, don't, I don't like the enthusiasm on Geraldine's face right oh, now. No. Very dramatic. <laughs> in about 1664, there was a conspiracy to set London on fire. Um, there was a guy, I, I mentioned the astrologer William Lilly. He actually predicted around about 1640 that, that London was going to go up in flames in the 1660s. Um, and they, uh, they took this, uh, this kind of prediction as a good, as a good measure of, of, 
of when we sh- when they they should launch their plot, and they actually um, mentioned it in his you know in their in their defence, and they all got got hung. And actually, in 1666, the fire did happen, and Lily got uh, taken to a parliamentary inquiry, saying, you know, how did you know when you predicted this? And it was like 15 years beforehand and stuff like that. So he 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 did the honest thing and said, I didn't predict that at all. No, it wasn't me. And he managed to get off. Uh, <laughs> he, was, he was big friends with Ashmole, who was big in the restoration government. And there's a plaque to him in the Strand. Yeah, by Still, Strand yeah, Station. Yeah, absolutely. It's slightly too high up, but it's worth tipping your hat to when you see it. Mm. He was an, an interesting man. This has been the most engrossing tangent ever, but we we still have something to settle, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we, oh. we're, we're one question left oh, on the right, quiz. Okay. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, go, go. <laughs> oh, go on, then. Thoroughly uh, enjoying that. arm wrestle yeah, now. Yes, this, this, <laughs> is, this, this is the 1444 one. It's the 1st of February, uh, because that'll make a difference on the 1444. <laughs> the steeple of St Paul's is damaged. By what? Lightning. It was indeed lightning. A fantastic comeback from Nigel of Bermondsey, yeah. who has just clinched be, this week's to quiz. Fair, to be fair, it's always lightning. I hadn't got through further than yeah. pigeons and Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damaged by pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> a really aggressive pigeon. Congratulations, Nigel of Bermondsey. It means, I think, that you uh, get to go first in, uh, in plugging your affairs. Okay, well, uh, I run the South East London Folklore Society, uh, and we meet on the second Thursday of every month uh, at the Old King's Head, which is on Borough High Street. I think it's 44 to 47 Borough High Street. It's King's Head Way, just quite close to London Bridge Tube. And on the 14th of February, we have a uh, presentation called London City of Sin. Uh, And it's a history of the depravities of London through the ages, which would be a good thing to do on any Valentine's Day. Now, we don't we don't want people typing depravity into the Internet. So what's the website? Uh, South East London Folklore Society. So if you look that up, you'll find out about that. I am Nigel of Bermondsey. I do do uh, gigs and stuff like that. I've got one coming up, I think, on the... I'm doing one on the 20th of March at the Underbelly in Hoxton. Um, I'll be singing songs about uh, witches, uh, cemeteries, uh, undertakers, uh, and assorted London ephemera. Uh, And also, if you look at my website, uh, nigelofbermondsey.com, you'll find out everything about what I'm up to, really. And you'll get to see a picture of a top hat. Oh, yes. yes. Um, well, thank you for, for hosting us, Geraldine Beskin, here at, at Atlantis Definitely. Books. Well, what's, what's coming up in the bookshop? Are we looking at um, uh, talks, events, that sort of stuff? Yeah, once a month we hold the Psychic Cafe here on the first Wednesday of the month, and that's a taster session to use cards, divination, dowsing, all manner of things. Very personal, and we work you hard, basically. It's not too flabby at all. And then we have evening classes starting in March as well. So look on the website, look on Facebook, wherever you'll find it. I don't know if, there's, if this is a, a, a sensible question or not, but do you uh, avoid the, the black magic? Is it just white magic? How does that all work? Yeah, no, there's only white magic, really. It's about intent, you know. Um, it, and you do get very toxic individuals who call themselves witches, and you get equally toxic individuals who call themselves Christians. It, it, but mostly people work with the we go forward with the wheel of the year and it is positive you know it's not black magic at all so don't be afraid of that well thank you for having us today and thank you both for being here (laughs) pleasure pleasure And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests Geraldine Beskin and Nigel of Bermondsey. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Rhea Heath and Dave Haste. 
theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. For your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.